I'm not going to use your name in this in case you decide to remain anonymous. Take me back to that moment when you were a true Scotsman and you went for a beer. <laughs> nah, just tell the story in whatever way you want. It's funny as we say that now, and I've got rocket alerts coming through my phone for Ashkelon. Um, but yeah, look, as we'd said there, you know, that morning at 6.30, it just felt like a normal morning when a rocket hits, you know, in the past year, it's almost a fucking inconvenience that mm. it hits early in the morning. You're like, bastards, you know, <laughs> could have done well on lie. Um, but as I say, it was very quickly from there where it was a barrage, absolute barrage of rockets constantly. Um, you get used to the sound. You get used to the sound of an interceptor. You get used to the sound of them intercepting rockets. Um, I've heard many rockets be shot out the sky above the apartment. Or, um, But as I was saying there earlier, you know that within that couple of hours, every rocket and every siren going off um, is mentally, it's mental torture for those, for that few hours. Um, that's, that's how to explain it. That, as I say, the time before you're used to these rockets, but at one point, it's almost every 15 seconds. And I'm on my phone, the rocket alerts are coming up every minute. I think there was even incidents where the the siren wasn't even going off, but you're hearing explosions. Um, the big, it felt closer than it's ever done. Um, as I say before, it's just a normal life, you know, as times the beginning of the year. The rocket goes off and literally 10 minutes later, you're away getting a haircut or going for a burger and a beer. Um, but as I say that every rocket going off and you're just, fuck me, stop, stop. I've had enough. This, this feels like torture at that point. Um, so much, so quick. And I think the sound of that siren, I mean, obviously it's a sound that makes people want to stand up and hear it and take it serious. But hearing that same sound over and over again is a stressor that every time you hear that alarm, your mind's going, oh, no, not again. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'd, this was the first time I'd felt the building shake. Um, I'd never felt that before. And I think at one point, you know, I'd, it's normally, as I said, you just lay in bed and turn over and be like, yeah, so what? It'll be over soon enough. Um, but I think as it went on and on and on, you're almost lying on the floor at the other side of the bed. And not that that's going to save you. It's, it's just it's just the way your fucking mind thinks that yeah. how you can keep safe going back to like a childhood. Not quite hiding under the bed. Let's, but at the same time, you're just thinking anything that gives you that bit of protection. Um, and you, you kind of heard a fizzing past the building and I've never heard that before. And I'm like, is that, what is that? Is that a rocket? Is that an interceptor? What is it? And I think that's the thing. I, I've been in the Mamad, which is the safe room there, um, which was my bedroom. Um, I think that when you're in that room, you don't see anything. And when your mind hears things, and if you don't see it, that's, that's mentally draining as well. And I think as I'd said to you earlier, the, in May when it was like a five-day mini-war um, and on a Thursday evening, I'm going going for a burger and a beer. And as I said, you know, I see one be intercepted in the sky and I'm like, ooh, that's pretty fucking cool, like fireworks. Ooh, look at that. 
and then boom, boom, boom. And then you're like, hmm, okay, I kind of better take it serious now. But we still went for a burger and a beer. And well, my wife was giving me shit all night that night saying, what are you doing? But when you're in that environment and what becomes the norm, um, as, as I say, a couple of teenage girls watching it, like Fourth of July fireworks, and it, it's the norm. But I felt safer being in the street that evening and actually seeing it. And I think it ties in with what I say there, when your mind can comprehend and see something, um, it's it's far less scary. And I'd seen a journalist write that in the way to Gaza once. He said, being in my mad was hell, but being out in the street, I felt alive. I felt safe because I could see it. Um, so anyway, as I say, that morning felt different. The building shaking, hearing like fizzing noises going past the building and I'm not one for dramatizing things either, you know. Um, well, quite sort of cool, calm, collected. And but as I say, that morning, within that few hours, in the barrage of rockets and boom, boom, boom. And as I say, it was like nine thirty. And um, as I said, you know, probably the one of the first times in your life where you feel helpless. You're used to hearing a rocket go off, and then not too long after, you you'll hear the IDF come in and sort of bomb Gaza, and you kind of feel relatively safe um it's funny that you can feel safe with with a jet going past your building going away to bomb gaza but that's you feel you've got someone that's got your back and you feel safe but as i say 9 30 that morning I'd, I'd felt helpless um probably one of the first times in your life you felt defenseless that you're you're going come on come on um idf waking up what's happening here you know and it was at that what was, at that point where you start to feel alone. Um, and I, as I say, it's really etched on my mind the time I phoned the British Embassy at 9.37. And as I said earlier, you'd almost feel like you're losing your shit at that time. But being someone that kind of analyzes things, can I'm still relatively got it together in one half of the brain, but the other side's like losing the shit. In your, it's like a conflict. Um, conflict of what you're feeling so as I say phone the embassy at 9.37 and the attitude's pretty much like well yeah just calm yourself down have a cup of tea and you make the decision we're not going to give you any advice so like a good Scotsman rather than a cup of tea it was the biggest well I had one big bottle of gold star local beer in my fridge so <laughs> I jumped straight to the fridge and got a, a beer just to um, take the edge off as I say I would have had a whiskey but I'd I'd kind of ran out and I thought my next trip home I'd get a bottle of whiskey, but never mind. Um, but seriously enough, yeah. got a beer just to just take a take a edge off. Because yeah. um, at that point, as I say, you're helpless, you're defenseless, but you're trying to make a rational decision at the same time. Well, you've, you don't know what's going on. It's so fucking jumbled. You've got no idea what's going on out there. You got. You're looking at the media. You're looking at the local media. You see on the local media is an apartment, probably within Ashkelon, a couple of minutes um, around the corner from me that's been hit. Um, not major damage in the car park, but still, you're thinking that's pretty. That's pretty darn close. Um, but even then, at that point in the morning, you're still not. You still got it pretty much. You got your shit together. Um, but when they were constantly going and going and you're reading news stories of militants 
um, going through the kibbutz in various areas that, you know, there a lot of those must be 5, 10, 15 kilometers within the distance of Ashkelon. As I said, where I've been living the last 10 months was Ashkelon, and that's about 10 to 13 kilometers from Gaza. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think from there, your what got me, the rockets initially don't bother you. As I said, the whole year, you're not fussed by rockets. It's a way of life. But that was mental torture with every alarm going off every minute for a period, and you're just like, please fucking stop. I've had enough. Um, but even then, it's it's the it's a whole militant thing, you know. You're reading that online, but you're trying not to submerge yourself in all the info either, because there's a lot of noise, there's a lot of uncertainty. Um, the media can be like that at the best of times, anyway. But there's just so much uncertainty, and you're trying to make a rational decision off all the information you've got at hand. But you haven't got time to come up with a war plan or anything, so to speak. You're, you've got to make some real fucking game time decisions. And so as the morning goes on, as I say, you know, the embassy having a beer, you're, you're kind of like helpless. And it's the first time where, I'll be honest, you don't feel like you're completely in control. And that's alien, you know, someone that's got their shit together, generally got things under control. I'll be honest, it's it, it didn't feel like that at that moment. Um, so as I say that that militant thing was the one that kind of started to scare me a little and you're trying not to get carried away you're reading the news stories and you're like okay there's no one here right now there's nothing to panic just keep it together but as the morning wore on I started I'd still had I'd been back to Ireland I think a week before so I still had a bag sitting on my table that was still half packed, a kind of like a light travel bag. I think from traveling around the world and being in places in Nigeria and Egypt and amongst some other lovely locations I've traveled to with being in the offshore industry in the past that um, you've, you kind of know, keep your passport close, have a go-to bag. I kind of started preparing that morning just in case. I mean, even with all the shit and all the carnage going on and all while still drinking that beer, you're you're um, making sure your bag's packed. You're making sure. I mean, look, there's priorities. It's um, it's funny because I've got a, shouldn't make a joke about it, but we kind of said my son said it as well. He goes, Dad, if um, we'll kind of know if Hamas have been in your apartment and we see them on the news with some hot hot pink Hugo Boss fucking polo shirt going about, we'll know they've made it to your apartment. <laughs> <laughs> That's good good backup from your boy though. <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah, it's, my wife still gives me some powders on that one in terms of the yeah. wardrobe I had out there, clothes that you would wear that are comfortable for Israel and we did yeah. we made a joke that there would be militants running about with blue trousers on, hot pink polo shirts and <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah, that was that was what was scary that morning is that the unknown um, and trying to keep your mind calm that um, and what you can control. But in that real time situation, as I say, you've got that real conflict there with one side of your brain going, yeah, it's cool. We've got this. And the other side just losing its shit completely. <laughs> um, 
And I think what I really started doing that morning, and it's a small apartment. It's got like a living area, like a kitchenette, bathroom, and the bedroom, which, as I say, turns into a mad. You're pacing, you're, you're, you're pacing every inch of that apartment. Um, probably did 10,000 steps alone in that apartment that morning. And you're looking out the balcony, I'm looking at my neighbor, you're looking at what's going on. And I think when you think when shit got real, most of that morning, the, the beach was empty because um, I can see the beach from my corner, sort of from my window. And there's a guy fishing and he's got his dog. And once that guy disappeared, you're like, yeah, yeah, um, shit's getting real. And you kind of, you're, you're, as I say, you're listening and watching the media. You're trying to see what's going on. You're trying to get a feel for it. Um, but, and then you hear on the news about paragliders and paragliders coming across the border. And I heard, I heard the paraglider in the area of Ashkelon. And I know that sound. I know it sounds so fucking clear because the whole summer you see the paragliders going along the beach recreationally. Even my son, when he was over for the summer, said, oh, dad, that looks pretty cool. Um, so you know the sound. Like a little jet pack, little office fan on their back and they're buzzing along the beach. And you know that sound and it's echoing off a building. Um, again, I think I would have been less scared if I'd actually seen a paraglider than when not, because you just hear the sound. So I I kind of held firm. What I didn't want to do either in that apartment in that time of the morning is go out into an unknown certainty if there's anybody, because at that point, the IDF haven't quite got control of it. You don't want to be going out in Ashkelon driving about and anything could happen you know when you're hearing militants going about pickup trucks you think well Ashkelon really isn't that far from some of these other kibbutz so I didn't want to put myself it's that whole fight or flight you've got both sides and I'd said it kind of phoned my wife that morning and I'd said it to her about sticker twist and like you've got one side of your mind go and run for your fucking life and still trying to not dramatize it either. But and then the other side's like, don't put yourself in unnecessary risk either. So I think I'd stuck it out in the apartment for nine hours. I think, yeah, it would have been from about 6.30 in the morning to 3.30 in the afternoon. And at that point, you're, you're, the whole building is on edge. Do you hear someone with a shutter? You hear someone drop something on the floor above you that it's palpable. You can really feel that tension there. And at that point, as I say, I've got my go-to bag ready. I've got my passport ready. And it's it's funny because I probably never got dressed slower in my life. It was, it was kind of quite funny because I've got a pair of boxer shorts and socks on. Things pick up a little bit. I've now got a polo shirt on. And as things pick up even more, I've now got a pair of um, loose trousers on just to... So that was, it was like a gradual build-up of getting ready to go. Um, the big turning point for me was looked through the little peephole thing in my door and I'd saw some people going about and I'd, I'd went out and to speak to them and say, look, how's the roads, how's things? And I realised it was my landlord. And um, he's like, look, Andrew, just just stay, stay in your, my mad, stay in your safe room, stay there. I said, how's the roads? He's like, yeah, it's fine. He goes, but just stay here, listen to the advice. 
And for me, I think when you go anywhere far around the world, you've got to follow the locals, whether it's eating, whether it's drinking, or whether it's stick or twisting during shit going down. Um, I think you should still stick with that. Um, so it was at that point, um, it was at that point where I kind of had been tying in with a few colleagues, but I had a colleague that lived in Ashdod about 20, 25 minutes sort of further north of Ashkelon. And I'd just been keeping in touch with him that morning and he'd said in the morning, if you need to come here. So I just kept that line of communication open as a backup. So even with everything going on, I'm trying to make sure I've got a backup plan for whatever I decide. And I think as well, I think you're never going to get 100% safe passage anywhere in life with any decision you ever make, whether it's being in a so-called war zone, whether it's in business, whether it's in life, whether it's in a relationship, whatever it may be, you'll never get to 100%. And I remember, I think it was Barack Obama said, I think he was asked on how he made decisions and when he was going for bin Laden. And his comment was, get to 70% and make a decision, push the button, and you can live with that. Stick with the process, get to 70%, then it's fucking go time. And that's that's what I'd done there. I got to 70% on Saturday afternoon, and I thought, it's now time to stick your head above the parapet and go out there. It's it's never going to be 100% safe. You cannot stay here in your apartment thinking you're going to be safe and think, oh, I can't stick my head out because what happens? I knew that at that point I was going out in, in an uncertain area. Um, so I made sure I had my go-to bag. I didn't use the lift. I went down the stairs. It's stupid, silly things that you think about. So I went down the stairs. And at that point, I mean, one thing I'd say over the whole period of the few days was this super heightened sense. Every sense in your body is alert and alive to the slightest smells, noise, whatever you're seeing um, is magnified a hundred times. Got in the car and um, making sure that I've got my work phone and I'm hotspotting the Wi-Fi on in my um, Irish phone because I've I've got an app for the barrier getting out of car park. So first of all, you've got to make sure you've got internet. So as you come downstairs, you're getting your bag in the car, you're making sure your phone's connected, you're making sure the app's good. Um, lift the barrier and there's a real real sense of eeriness it was um, just eerily quiet within going through Ashkelon I kind of turn up towards like Tamara Hotel and I start making my way a bit north towards Ashdod and you kind of see a bit of a charred building so to speak and you see the fields on fire where a couple of rockets have landed it's 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 nothing too horrific at that point but you're still seeing the aftermath um of what you've been listening to for nine hours and every fucking traffic light every traffic light's going red and you're sitting there and you're 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 looking and you're thinking you look to the left and you're you're checking each other out you're sitting there at the lights and it's not about racing each other, but you're looking there going, can I fucking trust you? Um, and you, you don't want to hang about. You do not want to stop. And every light, I'm like, fuck this. If I, you're, you're like, who cares about a ticket? Go. Um, and then you kind of turn on Route 4, which is a sort of main highway 
um, between Nashkalon and Ashdod, make it on there. In every car you see is just just an army. Um, there's, there's very little people on the road. Um, and then come across a checkpoint and you're like, please be genuine. Please be, please actually be the IDF and please, please don't give me any hassle here. Kind of stop. I kind of realize with the accent <laughs> that I'm, I'm okay. Let me through. Um, and then there I made it, I made it to, to Ashdod, parked a car in the underground car park at my colleague's apartment. And got up into his apartment, and that was the first sense of relief. As I'd said to you a couple of minutes ago, that I was always looking at the backup plan. I'm always looking at, and the first stop. What I try to sort of put everything into a box, compartmentalize everything, and say, right, I get to Ashdod. That's the first stop. If I stick my head up too much by trying to go to the airport right now, I could put myself in more danger. So I'm like, first stop is Ashdod. Assess the situation. Maybe it's not as bad as what it's felt this morning. So just get yourself 20, 25 minutes north. You're with a colleague and his wife. Let's reassess from there. And um, as I say, that was the first, the first little bit of feeling safe, but that quickly turns again. That was really short and temporary because they lived on a 34th floor, tallest, looks like the tallest apartment building in Ashdod, looking straight south, straight south at Gaza. You can see Ashkelon, you can see Gaza, you can see the rockets in the sky, you can see them being intercepted, you can see the jets, the helicopters, everything coming round, bang, hit Gaza, round. And it was just like a medical round, boom, boom, boom. And you could feel it and... So what I try to do there, I mean, my colleague and his wife, they were excellent in the food and, but you kind of go into bed and you're, you're way alert everything. An hour or two you sleep and they're in bed and you're almost like a night watchman. I'm looking through their living room window, watching everything that went on and you're only grabbing an hour or two sleep here or there and you're living off of that. You don't feel like you need any more, just that hyper sort of state of awareness. So what I did then, I've obviously got some heat from family. I, my mom, I've got, you know, wife, kids are saying, what you do and when you're coming home. And you're still trying to make an educated decision during a shit fest, to be honest. So this is kind of now the Sunday and I'm looking at a flight that day. But you're seeing things on Twitter. You're seeing things at the airport. You're seeing side things from the other side saying about the airport and this or that and I just felt that Sunday wasn't the right day to go. But one of the big things that kept me there in Ashdod on the Sunday, I know we had the work meeting later that day at five o'clock to go over security, what was happening, what the plan was for the week. And this is probably a hard one for my family to take as well there on the Sunday, that I f couldn't let my team down on the Sunday. I felt like, I wouldn't quite say a pussy if I'd left the country that day, but I'd did feel that I would have been letting my team down. I've got a team of 35 to 40 people on the project. Um, and as a leader, I would have felt like I was bailing out. Um, that was a real conflict on this Sunday between your work family and a team that you've really built and got a special connection with over 10 months to your family and kids. Um, just going on, and they like emotion side of things and going back on the Saturday, 
as I say to you, I've phoned the embassy or there's a lot of things going on and my wife sends me a picture of my seven-year-old. She could barely even eat her breakfast. She's she's a mess. And I was, looking back on it now, looking at too much news and looking at things like that isn't the best to try and consume that kind of info while you're in that situation. Um, because I got, when I saw the picture of my seven-year-old that Saturday morning, you cry a little. I'm not going to hide it. There's that bit of emotion there. And I think it's good and it's bad. And the reason it's good is because you've got a bit of relief, a bit of tension out and a bit of clarity comes back. Because I feel on that Saturday, I was clear. As I said, I had all this shit going on a few hours. I kind of wasn't clear. Almost feel like you're losing your shit. You're trying not to let panic creep in. And I kind of felt that bit of emotion, letting that out and seeing my daughter kind of hit the reset button to pull your fucking finger out your arse and get on with it. And, you know, that was game time. Things really changed then. Um, So then, as I say, the Sunday I'm assessing everything in Ashdod, I'm I'm looking at the rockets on the alert. I'm looking at how frequent they are. I'm looking at the times of day. I'm looking at everything I can to piece together a plan. And I kind of, looking for a window of opportunity, I said to my family, I reckon Monday between 12 and 4. Um, on the Sunday, I discussed with my director, boss guy in the States, I'd said, look, I don't want to go right now. I want to stay here for the team. But you're hearing horror stories. And at the same time, I've got one guy who's in Stirrup, and I'm asking him twice daily as part of our work check-in, how are you? How are you doing? And he's telling me he's still got militants walking around his village town and he's under siege. And you th- and I'd said that to to one of our senior management as well. I says, I'm here for the team. I'll do what I can. But I can't just go fucking down in my little tile. I go down to Stirot and say, yeah, jump in the back. You're safe. I'm like, you know, you've, yeah. you've you know, got to be practical and re- look at fucking reality at that point. And it's at that point where... You're like, yep, I want to look out for my team. I want to do the best thing. But you you then, reality hits and you're like, well, what can I do? And you're looking at your own safety, your family's safety. And as I say, I decided to, to I say, make a run for it on the Sunday. That that's when I stuck my head out of parapet again. Going back to that journey between Ashkelon and Ashdod, you know there's a lot of information and disinformation on the news and on that little bit of Route 4 between Ashkelon and Ashdod, I think that next morning, if I, it may have not been the same day I was on it. It's, it's hard to verify that news. But anyway, point being, on that stretch of road, there'd been a shootout on that exact bit of road I'd been on. And whether it had happened within an hour or two or it had happened the next morning, it may have happened within an hour, it may have happened 12 to 15, but it was still resonated with you because you knew you'd taken a chance getting... Ashkelon, Ashdod. And so, yeah, on the Monday, I've got a flight booked with sort of some Israeli air to go from to go from um, Ben Gurion Airport in Tel Aviv to go to Larnaca in Cyprus. I had a base there and family I could go to. They were prepared. Um, they had someone ready to pick them up from the airport. They had a bed ready, food ready. I mean, they were amazing. 
the support there from outside was fucking amazing. So at that point on a Tuesday, I'd spoke, or sorry, the Monday I'd spoke to my boss and said, look, I'm looking at going to Cyprus. It keeps me 45 minutes within the site, within the project. It keeps me close to the team and it appeases my family as well and keeps me relatively safe. I think 12 or 5 on a Monday. And I've been very specific with times. And it's it's just, as I said earlier, with the 9.37 in the embassy, it's very etched in your head. Um, I got a taxi to go from the airport because I thought, you want to keep things as simple as you can. When I'm making a plan and I think I want to go from Ashkelon to Ashdod, Ashdod to the airport, you want to cut out uncertainties. You want to cut out. I didn't want to then park a car in a long-term car park 15 minutes from the airport and then feel you're open and so I'd kept my car in my colleague's car park and got a taxi to the airport. Must have been 15, 15 20 minutes away from from the airport. And my driver pulls in. He's like, I think, um, it's at Rishon. It's, I always know that area because it's got an Ikea and it's 15 minutes from Tel Aviv. You, it's little landmarks that you know to look out for. Um, and he pulls in. And you've got people on the side of the road and beside bushes and they're, they're lying down, hands on the head. And I'm like, nope, 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 nope. I see cars whizzing past this and I'm like, I know I've got all due respect to, to what the Israelis would have been brought up with at school. Um, they probably would have been drilled into them from a young age. Get out your car, crouch down, lie in your belly, hands in your head. My honest opinion was waste of fucking time. Um, and I felt safer and I said to my driver, keep going, keep going. I think that's the safest thing for you and I to do. And again, that tied into Ashkelon going back there as well because that nine hours I felt like a sitting duck. And my instinct is to fight, to do something, be moving, sitting like a sitting duck. And I said to him, keep moving. Let's get to the airport. Um, you get to the airport and as expected, it's super tense, it's pandemonium, you're trying to check in for your flight, you're getting misinformation, you're getting told the desk will open at 1.30 because they never did a digital boarding pass. And, and then you start hearing little murmurings, it could be cancelled, it's it's a chartered flight, it's maybe not an Israeli jet um, airline, it's maybe they've chartered a plane elsewhere, if they've got a sign-off to take this plane into country. Um so at that point, you know it's you know it's going to get cancelled, but you're you're near the check-in area, and there's hundreds of people, if not a thousand or two, and people are looking around their shoulder, looking and looking, and it's building, it's building, and then all of a sudden, people just start running for their life. Um, you go in through the check-in desk, and there's another little. I won't call it a tunnel, but it's probably the best way to try and explain it. It's just an area where it really converges into a tight space and then it opens up again to security. And um, yeah, people are running. People are running for their life. Um, and that's what it feels like. People are screaming. People are upset. People are crying. You've got one guy in front. There's a woman running with a suitcase and he's going, are you a fucking moron running with a suitcase? There's people losing their shit with people all over the place. And I end up through the other side of security without a boarding pass. Mm. And, and then you're looking back on the entrance to the airport and you're trying to see what's happening. And then the airport put out an announcement, everything's back to normal. And I think later on, 
I'd looked at the rocket alerts and looked at what happened. And I think it was probably 10, 15 minutes south of the airport near one of the long-term car parks in a field where a rocket had landed, the siren went off. And I think that's what scared people in the airport. But I think the biggest thing for people at the airport was the uncertainty, the how different the situation was. If it was just rockets, nobody would be bothered. But what people are really concerned about was militant storm in the airport. And I know that sounds, it sounds fucking crazy. You know, in your head, you're like, come on, that ain't going to happen. This is going to be one of the most protected, safest areas. But you're also thinking, is it that attitude and being complacent or being arrogant that can put you at risk? And I remember the security guys I got the other side of the security and the woman let me through and she goes, yeah, on you go. And I says, look, I don't have a boarding pass. If I get further down there, it's pointless. So speaking to one security guy there, and he's like, look, we've got loads of security in the airport. You may not see them. Things are good. Um, So then I know my flight's delayed a couple of hours. I phone up the British Embassy again. But by that point, it's more just to check in, let them know I'm here. And look, I know I'm not getting any advice from them. I know they're not going to fucking come flying in and rescue me. You know that. Yeah. Again, it's the same thing. Well, yeah, just calm down, cup of tea, assess the situation. And I think no disrespect to them, but I don't know thought if you're dealing with, and I don't want to sound disrespectful to them, but you're dealing with pencil pushers in an office that have, whether it's true or not, you're thinking you fuckers have never been in a dangerous country in your life. Now, whether that's true or not, and I don't like to judge people, but that's what you feel at that time um, is you don't have a fucking clue. Um, I'm then going up every airline desk. I'm phoning up Emirates. I'm looking at Emirates flights. Do I go to Dubai? You're looking for a flight anywhere. Yeah. Every airline desk, and you see people scampering every airline desk. And, you know, I wouldn't quite call it survival the fittest. It's But you're, people are just running everywhere between checking desks, British Airways, Emirates, Elal, whoever it may be, trying to get a flight. So I'll get to British Airways, and I hear an English voice and it sounds so reassuring and she's like yeah Gloria just do for this guy what you did with this other guy here and get him booked on and I know the flight's going to be super expensive but you're that's, that's at least your worries at that point so you're like brilliant so then a woman takes me up to another booking desk and then her computer doesn't work and then upstairs to the <laughs> airport <laughs> computer doesn't work no just it's like a bad dream man the whole thing is like a bad dream where you just can't get the- I just couldn't get to that next step. Like, as yeah. I said, you know, going from Ashkelon to Ashdod, Ashdod to the airport, I want to just jump back one step there while we're saying that. As I say there, when the taxi driver stopped at that point, my colleague who had been living with in Ashdod showed me a rocket that had hit one block north of his apartment. And he said, that's on the exact route you took to the airport 20 minutes ago. 50. And it was like, okay. I got out of Ashkelon, that bit of road, there was a shootout. You almost feel like you've missed that. Then with that rocket, with you know it's 15, 20 minutes, you can verify that. And you're like, I'm dodging a few fucking bullets here. And then, but yeah, it's like one step forward, two back in the airport. As I say, flights delayed, flights canceled. You're booking several flights. And as I say, British Airways, they take them from here to a ticketing desk systems down she then takes me up into another part of the airport i didn't know exist 
up on the fourth floor somewhere in a little British Airways office. And she's phoning up people and she's trying to log into their system and she didn't know their password. And then the system's down. And all the while you're there, you're in that office looking for a safe spot. You're, you're thinking, where am I going to hide if anything goes wrong? And I'm not, it's, it's horrible. It's really conflicting that because I like to at least fight or run, but to hide or sit and duck, it's, but it's just, as I say, it's what's running through one side of your mind at that point is, but you're trying not to get carried away with things that are not happening. Um, so at that point, she's like, oh, go on the app. So I go on the British Airways app or go through Skyscanner. I've clicked the flight. I'm away to book it. It's 1500, whatever. Click, click, click. And then they're like, his flight's no longer available. And I'm like, fuck. Get back to the desk bit. And the woman's like, look, we've got a crew here. We need to get out of here as quick as we can. We can't hold the flight up. So that option was gone. And my wife's looking at flights online as well, looking at flights all over the place. Her cousin's helping looking at flights. But as quick as you're clicking on them, they're getting booked. I went on Skyscanner and there's a Pegasus 2, um, a smaller airport in Istanbul. It's at 840. Yeah. You kind of see it early doors, but then as the afternoon goes, you don't want to book anything that's too far ahead. And I didn't want to be a sitting duck in the airport in, at nighttime either. So I go on a Skyscanner, I click on Pegasus Direct, flight sold out. I'm like, fuck me, I am... I'm looking at backup plans. I'll speak to work. I'll get an apartment up in Herzliya. I'll get something. But you don't really want to then stick your head out again. You're you're at the airport. You feel close. You want to keep going, moving forward. So on Skyscanner, I did another option for lastminute.com. I clicked on there. I was just like, pick any random seat. I don't care. Boom, boom, as quick as I could. Put the card details through. Logged in, board and pass. I'm like, Yes. And then I get through security, I get speaking to some Australians, a Filipino woman, and they'd been on holiday. And I'd laughed at the these, this Australian, like a couple of older women, and they're saying to their friend, yeah, this guy nearly got popped twice. And I'm like, yeah, thanks, guys. It was, it was just so, it was funny to hear them say it that way. And um, like I was some sort of cool hero. And I'm like, there's nothing cool about this. There's There's a lot of people I've seen within my team that, have went through far worse than what I have. They've seen. Um, so anyway, you continue through the airport, and I'm just sitting. There's a big, it's a big circle in the middle of the airport in Tel Aviv, and like little cafes and things. And you're just sitting on a seat in the edge. I got got a couple of Summers B ciders. I thought I'll get a couple of those and just just chill. Oh, they were gone in thirty seconds, and I had then all of a sudden, boom. And I know the sound, and I sh- there's no reason to be worried. You hear, I've heard the sound a thousand times before of an interceptor shooting a rocket out of the sky, but you're so caught up in the emotion and the feelings and the group mentality that humans copy each other. And you're trying, you're doing it and you're not doing it. So you start running across, like, I'll call it C-Wing, where all the C-Gates are. And you're like, nobody knows where they're running. And people are just following. And you're like, hold on a minute. And you're you're trying to assess it. And then you look to the left, and there's a sign that says shelter. We end up down these stairs. And 
it's a service corridor. There's a little car park. There's a little area. You see a little buggy for the airplanes going past you. And nobody knows where the shelter is. But while you're going down that stairs, you're thinking, do I want to be in a shelter? Do I want to be locked in a room with people? Because you're thinking, is that the safe option? But anyway, we then hit another part of the corridor and um, got an American young woman, young American tourist, say I was safe. And the guy looks to the right. He goes, well, my dear, there's a fucking window over there. So what the fuck do you think? And that's exactly his exact words. Um, it's kind of quite sobering. And then she's like, well, what about if we just close this door? And I'm like, it's a flimsy door, sir. It's it's just a door, um, like a swinging door. And I'm like, come on. Um, and they're like, oh, what was that? And I was like, guys, I've heard this sound before. I live in Ashkelon. It sounds like a rocket being intercepted. Um, but everything's on edge. You go back up into the main bit of the airport and you're looking on every screen to check your flight's still going to go. Eventually, in a little screen, I see my flight. Um, my boss has told me about the flight that's coming from Istanbul to there, so I'm tracking that one. But as you're tracking it, you're you're just it's not that you're waiting for something to go wrong, but it's always like when you used to work offshore. Until that chopper showed up, you were... You were never going anywhere. So you kind of, it's about six o'clock, 10 past six, when the alarm had went off in the airport and the flight's two and a half hours away. Again, you're trying to just think, okay, I can see the flight in there. It's got 40 minutes till it's here. So you're trying not to overwhelm yourself. And that's what I'd said to so many people in the last week is, if I had thought to myself, I must do this, this to get to the airport. I must go to Ashton. I must go there. I must go there and think I've got six, seven hurdles to jump through. You could quickly come overwhelmed. So I just try to break it down to one thing at a time. And then when you get to the airport, you see the flight. You're breaking that down to 40 minutes and you're tracking it. And as it's starting to descend, you hope it's not going to be in a holding pattern. You hope it's not going to be rerouted. Because you tell me how many airports in the world could have a fucking rocket shot at it and flights would continue. So you're thinking, <laughs> you're thinking, you're thinking, I, I just want out of here. And you see the flight start to take a different route. You, you can see it on this flight radar. It's north near Lebanon, but not too close. And then you start seeing it. And I'm like, please turn, please turn, please turn. And then you see it over the West Bank start to turn down and make its way down to Tel Aviv Airport. And at that point, you then look out the window, you can see your plane there and you're like, next step. But then it must have taken 30, 40 minutes for that point to start boarding. You're looking at everything going on. You're thinking, is this even going to board? You get on the flight and you're like, okay, I'm now one step closer, but you still don't feel you're out of there. You're looking, your mind at that point, and especially when you're in an environment where people are thinking negative, they are thinking panic, they are thinking whatever. It's cra- again, as crazy as it sounds, you're thinking, what if the the plane's hijacked? What if... And it, for, it's fucking maniac to think like that. But as I say, you've got one side of that brain thinking like that, and you're like, be fucking stupid. And then on the other hand, you're thinking, well, last week, well, the day, a couple of days before this wasn't meant to happen, people would have thought this could never have happened. So, um, So then again, you're... The um, 
the captain comes on and says 10, 15 minutes, we'll close the doors, we'll start the engines. And at that point, that's your next countdown is 15 minutes. But I think one, what really helped in that situation as well is that there was a guy to my right, um, he did a lot of content and he'd been out in Israel and looking at things and food and culture and different perspectives and creating some content for that. And um, so we had a great discussion just, and I think that helped the both of us massively to have a real good conversation and connection with just a random stranger on a flight that kind of took your mind off things. Um, I think that was probably nice for both of us. And I'd kind of said to him, I says, be prepared. This is going to be the steepest fucking takeoff you will do of your life. <laughs> you kind of you kind of see the captain setting up and puffing the wings out and you think yeah i'm not an expert i'm not a flying expert and i don't I never pretend to be but i'm thinking i know what he's doing here and we're going to yeah, climb as quick it's, look it's simple is it if you're in an area with rockets you're going to want to get as high as you can as quick as you can um so then the plane starts taxiing and it's taxiing and all the way around a bit of a circle and you go, come on, come on, come on. And you, you know it's going to take, when you've flown a lot, I've probably done about 62 flights this year, you you know every bit of the runway. Um, you know exactly where you're going to turn and take off. And this, you knew we were going to head a bit more north on that flight. And I'd said to the guy, right, buckle up because, you know, this is going to be quick. And... It sounds crazy to say it, but it, it felt like as we're going along the runway taxi, and it was the shortest, shortest taxi I've ever done in my life once we hit the runway to take off. But it felt like we were doing a wheelie. It actually, <laughs> and I, I looked out the window, and it was. The front of the plane was pitched up, and I still think it. Again, I'm not a flying expert, but you look at it, and you think, am I imagining this? We're, we're at an angle. The front nose is pitched at like, I don't know, 20 odd degrees. You're, you feel like you're almost airborne, but you're on the runway. And then boom, straight up. Um, I remember seeing it at an air show many years back, showing what an A380 could do, I think. And they had it boom, vertical. So I thought, all right, okay, we've got a bit more weight in the plane. But I thought these planes can do way more than what the average person think they can. Um, so again, we climb it's a pretty cool takeoff. Probably one of the coolest takeoffs of your life, but it's also the longest. I always, you're almost thinking, right, 13, 16 minutes and you should be cruising. But that 13 minutes and everybody's looking out the window, you're hoping there's no rockets. And, but I think one of the things that, whether it was true or not, just before I got on a flight, I think one thing I'd heard as well before, Thor, when you're going through maybe a traumatic situation or you're going through, I don't want to say hell, but when you're going through something difficult, they say one of the biggest, best things you can do is being kind to someone. And and that can sound bizarre when you're in a situation like that. Um, so I've got an old guy sat beside me, beside the gate, and it's not even a seat, it's a bit of a table. And I'm like, yeah, take a seat here or I'll give up my seat. And his wife's there and she gives me some grapes and, we strike up a conversation and he's telling me how he used to be like a naval seal within um, the IDF many years back. He'd retired. His wife was from Philadelphia. And, and we're just there supporting and being kind to each other. And 
it's amazing how much that helps in this situation. It's the biggest bit of advice I'd give to anyone in a tough situation is to have that ability to be kind to someone, speak to someone. And I don't want to sound too whimsical or too utopian in a nice way, but I'm telling you the real world experience I was in and that helped. And he'd said to me as well that he'd heard that every plane that was leaving the airport was getting an escort from a fighter jet, whether that was true or not. I don't know, but it certainly felt a little bit reassuring. Um, so it was a great conversation, got some really nice grapes. And, so and I'm going gonna, gonna to have to wrap up in a minute because I've got a hard stop coming up. And that is that actually feels like a beautiful end point to the story, this idea of being kind in a crisis situation. But is there anything else you want to add just before we wrap up? Because, yeah, apologies, I'm going to have to wrap up in a minute. Yeah, thank you for sharing. I think in next point from there, where again, it gave me the same feeling as Ash Dodd when I first got to my colleagues. Um, the flight's got Wi-Fi, but it's only to look at the flight tracking in the menu. Yeah. So I'm tracking it. I see the flight going up. And once it got over Cyprus, I'm like, I'm relaxed. And um, I'd said to the air hostess, I'll have a whiskey. And said, so will this, so will this fucking gentleman to my right. <laughs> And we managed to get a whiskey. It was, it wasn't even the best. Some little Shiva's Regal that was, <laughs> but it was, it was quite a funny whiskey to get on that flight. But anyway, we didn't, what I want to make clear with that is we didn't have a whiskey in a celebratory mood. It was reflection. It was a time to reflect on being alive, getting out of there. And it was a recognition to what other people had been through and were continuing to go through at that point. So we we weren't going, oh, cheers, we're here, let's party, we're alive. It was more just a reflective ref- moment on a more humane kind of point of view. Um, and that was the first point there in Cyprus where we just both could relax with a with a whiskey and um, we, it was a real good connection. And um, I'm probably keeping in touch with that guy for the rest of my life now. And I get, as I say there, it's, for as much of a shit situation that was, um, as you say there, that kindness, that's the biggest thing that helped me, I think, in that situation Yeah, um, is being kind. And your mind on one side is almost panicking. It's, it's hard. It's really hard to do that in a real-life situation. I think for me, um, I'm super proud of the sort of decisions I made in game time. I don't think there's much I would have changed there. As I'd said to you, the emotion, the things in that morning, the feeling helpless, the I think your mind changes a lot over the last week and a half as to what you go through. Um, I think one thing I've always had with working offshore in various countries is it's not that you turn a blind eye to it, but you're you naive even. You're just there in that country, you go make your money, you do your job. You do your job well, but you don't really involve yourself with much else going on. But I think as the last week and a half has went on, I think my ideas and thoughts have evolved and developed and grown and developed as a person. And I think for whatever country you ever go in, and it's one thing respecting people, the culture, the food, um, not taking sides either way and, and it's hard. You see some Israeli friends that have been through hell 
and you really start to differentiate between, you know, the Israelis, the Palestinians, Hamas. You start looking at all, doing your homework. But I think one thing for me in any country I'll ever go for the rest of my life is to really understand that country and really understand that you're not just there to make money. And again, it ties in with that sort of people. And I think I think as a, as a leader out in Israel this year, I've, I've massively developed. I know when I spoke to you three years ago and I was working in Plymouth and I look at studying I've done and I look at what I thought was important in that time of life, what was important for self-esteem, what was important for confidence. And I think things have massively changed and grown and and developed. And I look back over the situation and I think I read an article going back on Ashkelon where someone said about barricading themselves in a safe room and struggling to comprehend what was going on. And I think that was the biggest thing in that first few hours was trying to really comprehend what was going on in such an uncertain situation, especially when they say a couple of thousand rockets were launched from Gaza, Ashkelon. And so, yeah, as I say, I think from last week, I've been obsessed with the news, looking at the timelines, really wanting to understand the decisions I made in game time, why I made those, what I was feeling and looking at lessons for the future. But as I say, the time over the last week and a half has really evolved. And even on this call with you, it's evolved even more, speaking that out and saying, because it's one thing there at a time. I've been kind and whether it's at my colleague and we're sharing a joke or having some dinner together or it's that guy on the plane or it's the guy just at the gate. And I think that's the biggest thing I take away um, in a time of shit, in a time of humanity doing things to each other that are fucking barbaric and absolutely mental to comprehend. It's okay to not be able to comprehend, comp- I'll start again, comprehend those things when you're in that difficult lifetime situation. Um, and I think it's living with that, knowing that you made the best decisions in the time that you could while being kind to the fellow people that you came across at the airport because everybody was going through a shit story of their own. Really appreciate that, man. Speak to you later. Cheers. Thanks, sir.